Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Spikes is launching a new daily newsletter. It is called, imaginatively, Today on Spiked. It will give you a roundup of all of our articles and podcasts and essays each day, along with a bit of exclusive commentary from the Spiked team every weekday at 6pm. We're publishing more and more these days, so sign up now to make sure you never miss an article. Just go to spiked-online.com slash newsletters. That's spiked-online.com slash newsletters and sign up for Today on Spiked. See you there. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and joining me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's deputy editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show the New York Times N-word controversy, Italy's unelected prime minister, and the COVID travel ban. A veteran award-winning reporter was forced out for repeating racist language. The letter to management, McNeil resigned, with Baquet telling employees we do not tolerate racist language regardless of intent. A woke mob is in charge over there and that they bow to their own staffers. That apparently gets triggered if they're presented with any opinion contrary to their own. A celebrated science writer has been ousted from the New York Times after reportedly using the N-word several years ago on a Times-sponsored trip to Peru. Donald McNeil was initially disciplined by the Times after it was determined that he only used the N-word in the context of a conversation about racist language. But for staffers at the NYT, this punishment was not enough. They penned a letter to management demanding an apology and a further investigation of McNeil, who they then accused of being racially biased. Management then said it agreed with the letter and McNeil resigned. He issued a grovelling apology in which he conceded that even the context in which he used the slur makes it no less offensive. Tom, you wrote about this incident this week. Do you want to talk us through it? Yeah, sure. It's it's another in an increasingly long line of kind of woke purges at the New York Times, if you like. And I think whilst we'd be a bit remiss to constantly compare this new kind of intolerant identity politics to kind of historical authoritarian regimes, this story really does have it all. So as you say, he was on this time-sponsored student trip to Peru. He used the N-word in the context of a discussion about racism. One of the students had raised a case of a student in their school being found to have used the N-word and the question of whether or not they should have been kicked out on it. That seems to have been what it comes down to. And despite the fact that originally the bosses at New York Times found that he had no ill intent as a combination of these young people snitching on him and then his own co-workers turning on him, he's had to issue this grovelling apology and resign. And, you know, the kind of parallels you see are, are pretty striking there. I think it's really important to make clear just how insane this particular case is. You know, there's always been a long-running discussion about when it is or isn't acceptable to discuss particularly very charged racial language. But the fact that there was clearly no ill intent here and it was in the context of just discussing the word, referring to it, makes clear that this is really about something else. And I think what's really quite striking about this example as well is the extent to which first his own co-workers and then the bosses at the New York Times just completely threw him 
under the bus. There was this original investigation which basically found that Wasi probably shouldn't have done it because it clearly upset the apparently quite well-to-do and woke students on this trip that really it didn't deserve to go any further. But then you have his own colleagues turn on him and they aired these kind of completely unsubstantiated suggestions that there was a bit of a pattern of behaviour. But as soon as people have actually tried to substantiate that, that seems to have completely disintegrated. And then his superiors just completely threw him under the bus. They said they agreed with this letter that his colleagues had written voicing their discontent and then came out with this alarming statement following that of saying that when it comes to racist language, intent doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter if you're using the phrase only to condemn it. It's the same mm. as hurling it in a racist fashion, apparently, which is which is crazy. I mean, what we're really seeing here play out in the New York Times, as we're seeing play out in many elite, quote-unquote, liberal institutions in the US, is the increasing power of people who claim the moral high ground on issues of language and woke politics. You almost struggle to understand why any of them had done this, other than to just assert the fact that they could, in a strange kind of way. People were feigning outrage about a conversation between this journalist and school children that they weren't even witnesses to. It's really quite strange. And whilst there might be some axes to grind against him as an individual, maybe people didn't like him or whatever. The pointlessness of it, I think, is kind of interesting because I think it shows that for a certain amount of people, either because it burnishes their narrative that racism is so everywhere, it's even, you know, rampant at the New York Times, or because they do it because they can. They mm. eject a colleague simply because they can to kind of demonstrate the power and hold their ideas and them as individuals have over these institutions, I think is a really striking element of it. So much kind of moral authority in society and in elite institutions has been given to the permanently outraged. And I think what we're seeing in cases like this is them exercising it has become increasingly addictive for those people. Yeah. And I mean, it's just so obvious in the case of words like the N-word that the context matters. I mean, you know, how on earth would any New York Times staffer listen to hip hop without being traumatised? You know, it's it's clear that if they understand that the context of a black person saying it is different to a white person saying it, then, you know, how can it be understand the difference in use between using it as a slur to demean and insult people or just quoting it in a conversation, just referencing it? I mean, what's interesting is that John McWhorter has pointed out that the taboo on saying the N-word is actually quite a new thing, the taboo of referencing it. And the power of the word has really grown, especially in the last 20 years, rather than diminished, actually. And it's probably as a result of society adopting more progressive attitudes about race and just using the word a hell of a lot less. That seems to have actually made it more powerful. And as we've seen in lots of other areas of life, the less racist people actually become, the less discrimination people of colour actually face the more power then becomes invested in words and some things that are not even as much as words, things like microaggressions or kind of so-called implicit bias. And any discussion or debate about racism is now said to be potentially triggering, or even this came up a lot around the Black Lives Matter discussion, where, you know, talking about race is spoken of as a kind of emotional labour, which people find almost physically exhausting to do the work. So, it really is striking how the context has shifted around race to such an extent that simply referencing a word can strike fear in the heart of the woke. Ella? Treating the N-word as almost like an object that is in and of itself as a word, evil, external from context, external from any kind of placement in history, actually diminishes what it stands for because the whole point of that particular word and and turning it into kind of 
almost like a incarnation of, or like a spell. Like if you, if you simply utter it, it's going to have consequences completely diminishes its power as a signifier of a particular moment in history or a particular political thought. And that's why it is important to say that when, for example, a black rapper uses it, that it has a completely different political meaning to when a white racist uses it. And as you both have said, you can kind of get tied up about this. I think that the people who are objecting to McNeil's usage of it know that, you know, there's yeah. a kind of element of cynicism going on here. They know that, they accept that. What's happened is that they just don't like the fact that this guy has used it and, and don't want to allow him to use it. I mean, on a slightly different point, it's a bit difficult because when you talk about workers' rights, the image that springs to mind isn't necessarily of high-flying journalists. But there is an element here where you do have to consider what precedence these, this kind of action sets for workers' rights. Because basically, on the face of it, you have, he wasn't sacked, he was, was resigned, but you know, any sensible person can see that it probably wasn't his choice to leave, and that there was a huge amount of pressure going on behind the scenes, has stepped down, lost his position on the basis of not even voicing a political opinion. It wasn't even like he was he was stating his racist opinions or saying something con controversial. But for simply either one, if you take his his reasoning, making a mistake and saying something that he shouldn't have said, or saying something com completely innocuous. Mm. And you know, if you allow employers to have that kind of power, that sets a very dangerous precedent for the rest of us. I mean. I think the fact also that it was sort of the young people who were complaining initially about this is also significant. And Tom, in your piece for Spike this week, you referenced what Barry Weiss and others have talked about, particularly in the New York Times, of this kind of generational war between a very woke Gen Zers and the kind of more liberal, older people in the magazine that are, that are sort of at war over this. But it feels like the sort of child spies program in 1984. <laughs> I mean, not again, not to be too alarmist, but there's this real youthful zeal of pulling down older people who have different views than yourself. You know, it brings up kind of historical connotations that are quite worrying. Mm. And no one seems to be thinking about the knock-on effect of, of that. I mean, whether or not you think that McNeil should or shouldn't have used the N-word at all, the surrounding context of this mm. event sets a very dangerous precedent for free speech, for workers' rights, and for anyone that has any sense about how to use language. Huh. The workplace point, I think, is actually really important because as you say, you know, it's, it's strange to kind of extrapolate this from a spat at the New York Times. But at the same time, especially because McNeil, as it's been recently discussed in recent days, was actually quite active over the course of his time at the Times in so far as actually pushing back against management for pay and working conditions. And you kind of, and there's been some kind of internal argument between people who work at the Times now or used to on Facebook pages and all sorts of other things which have been reported recently of just talking about how strange, particularly the older generation have found it, that a colleague was thrown under the bus. And it is interesting how this kind of new ideas around diversity, sensitivity training, all of these kinds of things which have come into particularly white-collar workplaces, but other ones increasingly as well, is that it really does redefine the kind of relationship between the bosses and the workers, if you like. The bosses almost become empowered as a means to kind of mediate between these different sorts of factions to punish people for things that they say rather than it being a more antagonistic relationship between people who take a wage and people who are on top of the company. It's a really interesting kind of sort of shift that we're seeing. And I think it, it does kind of demonstrate how, despite masquerading as very progressive, the sorts of quite top-down <laughs> sorts of uh, environments that woke politics seems to create for itself. And 
as we were talking about a little bit earlier, this is a increasing thing at the New York Times. You know, there's been this run of scandals, particularly over the course of the past year. Their opinion editor was basically pushed out last summer because he dared to publish a piece by a sitting Republican senator, which was calling for the army to be brought into quell riots in the wake of the George Floyd protests. Obviously, there was the Barry Weiss example that um, Ella was just talking about. And it's really quite interesting because, again, you have the kind of rise of this new ideology, this kind of new moral authority, which is increasingly keen to kind of wield its power, but is increasingly incoherent at the same time. I think this N-word controversy really does sum it up. Who could genuinely hold to this line that the management now holds that intent doesn't matter when even Nicole Hannah-Jones, NYT columnist, the woman behind the 1619 project, it took them five minutes to realise that she'd used the N-word on Twitter like within the course of the past year. <laughs> so it's it's absurd. But again, I think one of the things that's interesting about this woke ideology, and this is something that John McWhorter is made clear is the fact that a lot of it's, it's catechism doesn't make any sense you know and what often it comes down to is the assertion of moral authority and the willingness of people to kind of throw their weight around because they have been lent this kind of power so even though it's often incredibly incoherent what it is that they're arguing for what it is that they want it's nevertheless seems to have maintained a grip over some of the most esteemed institutions in Western societies. And that's something which is really dangerous, not just because it's authoritarian and also these ideas that we talk about are very divisive and unpleasant, but also it's just really kind of unwieldy. You're going to kind of careen from one non-controversy to the other, it feels like, because ultimately what people want is to be outraged and to assert their moral authority rather than to actually achieve anything. Investing is one of the best ways to grow wealth over the long term. However, high commissions and clunky products from traditional stockbrokers can make it seem complicated for people to start investing. Meanwhile, trillion dollar investment companies get built, but very few people benefit from that wealth creation. Free Trade is on a mission to change that by breaking down these barriers and by opening up stock investing to everyone. While other brokers charge up to £12 for every trade, Free Trade doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can invest and keep more of your profits. The award-winning investment app is used by over 250,000 people. It's authorised by the Financial Conduct Authority, and it's protected by the Financial Services Compensation Scheme. Free Trade has won the award for Best Online Trading Platform at the British Bank Awards for two years in a row. Free Trade lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs and investment trusts, all without commissions. The intuitive design makes investing simple for any experience level, beginners and experts alike. You can start investing from as little as just £2. Free Trade doesn't offer any speculative products such as CFDs or spread betting or products with leverage, and they don't do day trading. They're all about long-term investing with a transparent pricing model and no hidden fees or inflated spreads. You can sign up for a general investment account or a stocks and shares ISA, or you can sign up to Free Trade Plus with more advanced order types and a bigger stock universe. Self-invested personal pensions are also being launched on Free Trade soon. When you invest, your capital is at risk. The value of your investments can go up as well as down, and you may receive back less than your original investment. So go to freetrade.io slash spiked and if you register and fund your account, you'll get a randomly allocated free share worth between £3 and £200. Some of the shares you can win include Greg's, Rightmove or Apple. For more information, visit freetrade.io and for the special offer, 
visit freetrade.io slash spiked. Mario Draghi, the former head of the European Central Bank, has been asked to become the Prime Minister of Italy, and he's in talks with Italy's political parties to form a government. The Italian government collapsed in mid-January when two ministers from former PM Matteo Renzi's Italy Alive party resigned after disagreements over a €200 billion COVID-19 recovery plan. Draghi has been chosen to lead a technocratic government, and he was often hailed as the man who saved the euro. The Italy he'll take over is still reeling from the pandemic and is facing its greatest economic downturn in history. Three years ago, Italians elected a Eurosceptic government in protest against years of EU meddling and EU-driven austerity. Now, Italy will be led by a Europhile banker who is largely responsible for instigating those austerity measures. Tom, what are your thoughts on Italy's latest unelected leader? Well, there is just a horrible sense at the moment in Italy and across Europe of kind of history repeating itself in terms of horrendous things that happened in the wake of the financial crisis and now things that are happening kind of in the wake of the coronavirus and lockdown crisis. And I think it's really quite striking that, again, you have this kind of echo of what happened in 2011 when you had Mario Monti, obviously this European commissioner economist, being brought in to lead this technocratic government ever since there's not really been a properly elected prime minister since. And what's happening now and what's interesting about that, I think, as well, is the fact that what we're seeing play out on the European Union level, as well as on the level of kind of national European elites, is this very firm conviction that particularly in times of crisis, you need to dispense with democracy. Technocracy is the way to solve it. You need the smart people, you need Draghi to come in, etc. And yet the lesson of the last crisis in particular was how terribly that panned out, particularly for ordinary Mm. European citizens. So of course, Monty was charged with doling out very punishing austerity measures, actually at the behest in part of Mario Draghi, who was heading up the ECB at the time. So even though things were a little bit different this time around, Draghi will actually have a bit of cash to splash because of the money coming from the EU recovery funds and all the rest of it. It's still, I think, a sort of damning indictment, really, of how this seems to almost be the default partly in times of crisis, but you know, Europe's had a lot of crises over the course of the past 10 years in particular. (laughs) So it's really quite disheartening. And I think the other disheartening thing about it was that actually the kind of populist challenges, which were either created or certainly bolstered and transformed by the kind of post 2011 moment, particularly the five-star movement as, as well as the league, have kind of resigned themselves to this situation. You know, I mean, the last government, which has now collapsed, was basically created when the five-star movement pushed out the league and then went into bed with the Democratic Party, the kind of establishment centre-left party, despite some original grumblings there signalling that they might be into forming a government under Draghi. And then even the league, who are obviously far more explicitly Eurosceptic, wanting to get into bed with this EU grandee, effectively. So again, it feels like kind of history repeating itself, but at the same time, even the few sort of sparks of rebellion against that order, which were created by the past crisis, seem to be completely fizzling out and getting into bed with the establishment pretty willingly. So it's, it's a pretty bleak picture, definitely. Ella? One point that strikes me as important that, Fraser, both you mentioned in your long read for Spiked on the European Union and Dominic Standish mentions in his column on Draghi in Spike this week, 
was the significance of him being a banker and his professional history in relation to financial services. So Director General of the Treasury in the early 90s, Governor of the Bank of Italy between 2006 and 2011, and most importantly, perhaps European Central Bank President between 2011 and 2019. And the reason why that's important is because the nature in which the relationship between democracy and the economy has been shaped in Italy and within the European Union has drastically changed since the Second World War. Actually, Adam Curtis's new documentary, Can't Get You Out of My Head, is fascinating in that it looks at this and it looks at the way in which a creation of a deficit of democracy was organised within the European Union among people like Draghi who decided that because of the challenges that the Second World War had thrown up or the crisis that it had thrown up of democracy where elites started to feel confident in saying that you couldn't trust publics to make big decisions, there was an increasingly a move towards technocrats like Draghi taking control, making, as they claimed, scientific, rational, cool-headed decisions about, for example, how to manage economies, you know, Blair did it, Clinton did it, removing democratic control from the way in which the economy worked. And what is the outcome? Particularly, Fraser, you point to this in your long reads that Italy, of all the member states, probably bar Greece, has suffered worse, particularly throughout the pandemic, because of its inability to make sovereign decisions about the way in which its economy is run. Mm. And so getting a technocrat like Draghi in, who is steeped in the political drive to eliminate democracy and eliminate democratic functions from the running of a country, and particularly in relation to Italy, which whose biggest crisis at the moment is its finances and the poverty of many people living in Italy at the moment, it just does not sound good. And it's, you know, you wonder when people kind of pathologize populism and paint it as something that's a kind of evil threat. And yet what is their solution? Turning up a technocratic banker to, as far as I can see it, deepen Italy's problems. Is that the solution? Is that what people in Italy want? I find it hard to believe. You know, there's just so many myths, I think very self-serving myths thrown around about Italy that people use to justify these kinds of technical governments. I mean, there's the stereotypes about Southern Europe generally, you know, they're, they're lazy, they're greedy, they're corrupt, they're profligate, you know, and that's why they're always in this mess. But, you know, Italy has been one of the most fiscally disciplined members of the Eurozone since its foundation. The real problem that Italy faces is growth. And it's had that problem since pretty much it signed up to the Maastricht Treaty. You know, Italians are poorer in real terms than they were in the year 2000. That is what a wonderful job the technocratic leaders of Italy and the Eurozone and the European Union have done. The Italian economy never recovered from the Euro crisis, even if Mario Draghi is supposedly the man to have saved the Euro. And Italy is always going to struggle as long as it stays in the Euro, because as you were suggesting, Ella, the Italian government doesn't have many of the kind of you know usual economic tools at its disposal. It doesn't have the right to set interest rates and determine monetary policy. It can't let its currency devalue, which is actually how the Italy of the post-war era often managed to make itself competitive. And it doesn't really have much control over fiscal policy either, because that's severely limited by EU and kind of Eurozone constraints. And it was interesting to see, even before Draghi was foisted on Italy, just how little kind of 
democratic debate there was over how to recover from COVID, especially economically. Giuseppe Conte was talking about essentially setting up a panel of experts to decide where this money goes. So you could see that no matter what had happened, (laughs) this decision was not going to be in the hands of the people. Mm. And it was fascinating that there could have been an election, but they had COVID as the excuse, as the ready-made excuse as to why we can't go to the polls, why we can't go to the people, even though pretty obviously America managed to undertake a much larger election in the middle of the pandemic. So, you know, the excuses for taking these decisions away from the public and keeping them in technocratic hands are incredibly feeble and they need to be challenged at every turn. Mm. Tom? I'm just so struck by how relaxed people seem to be, particularly the commentary across Europe are about this situation. Because as you were talking about earlier, Fraser, you know, the last kind of properly democratically elected Prime Minister of Italy was Silvio Berlusconi, Mm. who is currently in the European Parliament, but nevertheless is, is definitely an icon of a very different age. And yet at the same time, how relaxed people seem to be about the situation is, is very striking. It's not just in Italy. There was a Guardian editorial praising Draghi to the hilt recently, talking about how it's the wrong time to go to an election because it might spook the markets and it might benefit far-right populists. So again, you've got to keep the people out of this equation, not only because they might screw it up and elect a bunch of incompetent idiots, but at the same time might just elevate the wrong people and, and spook the markets at the same time. These arguments are really quite striking. And there was even back in kind of 2011, there was a little bit of a kind of pause. <laughs> there was, mm. it felt like there was, a, if you read accounts from the time, there was a little bit of a kind of concern about what was being ushered in here. But this is completely par for the course, it seems at this point. And it's interesting how particularly in the West, in Britain, certainly at the moment, there's a lot of discussion about how at the end of this pandemic in particular, the need to counter people coming to the conclusion across the world that with a rising China, that there's an, another way other than kind of liberal democracy to do things, that we need to kind of put up a, a better fight for the importance of, of our system. In terms of a top-down technocratic unaccountable, softer than China, I'll grant you, but nevertheless, deeply anti-democratic in the way that it operates. This has been par for the course in Europe for a very long time. And the fact that at this point, it doesn't even seem to surprise people, actually seems to actually kind of mildly cheer people that another unelected banker is being ushered in to lead Italy, I think speaks volumes really about how, despite the fact people talk so often about the values of democracy, the values of liberal democracy, acting, if anything, like the populist upsurges were a challenge to that. At the same time, they're incredibly comfortable with this kind of completely unaccountable rule. You're listening to The Spikes Podcast. This podcast, like all of Spikes content, is free. There's no paywalls or no paid subscriptions. We rely on the support of our loyal listeners and readers like yourself to keep producing our groundbreaking podcasts, interviews, articles, essays, and more. So, If you're a regular listener to our show, please do consider donating to Spikes or even better, becoming a regular donor. Even £5 per month can make an enormous difference. To start your regular donation today, just go to spikes-online.com and click the red donate button in the top right corner. That's spikes-online.com and the red donate button in the top right corner. Now, back to the Spike podcast. Health Secretary Matt Hancock this week announced new enforcement measures at the border. The government is concerned that new vaccine-resistant variants of the virus could enter the UK and undermine the vaccination programme. 
passengers returning from one of the 33 designated red list countries where more transmissible variants are believed to be spreading will have to quarantine in government approved hotels from next week. Most strikingly, anyone who's caught lying about coming from one of those countries could face 10 years behind bars. This is the most extreme punishment for any breach of the lockdown yet, and is a longer sentence than is handed out for most sexual assaults and gun offences. Ella, what are your thoughts? Well, that last point you made, Fraser, about the the nature in which this the sentence basically makes a mockery of the way in which sentencing should work, which is that it should fit the crime, mm. is quite remarkable. Lots of people have said this from Lord Sumption to actually quite a few commentators in the media that it's pretty bizarre, even if you could class it as some kind of fraud, that failing to fill in a form properly or not promising to quarantine for, you know, giving up three days in or something like that, that committing a crime of that kind of nature would be even equivalent to or worse than for example, sexual offences involving children or violent offences involving firearms is crazy. But the the reason why the government feels confident in doing this is because it hasn't just come out of thin air. It's because there has been a general sentiment throughout the pandemic that unless the state uses an extremely heavy hand to implement and make sure that measures are followed, regulations are followed, that publics will run amok. And I mean, the kind of people who are going on either holiday or going away for work visits or who are traveling abroad at the moment are a tiny, tiny minority of people. And more often than not, as you kind of heard anecdotes all across the news over the last few weeks, they usually have pretty good reasons for going. I mean, yes, there's been this kind of fuss over influencers going to Dubai and, uh, you know, lots of presenters kind of got hard-ons over the last (laughs) week condemning them and it was all a bit grotesque. But this isn't a kind of serious issue. If there is a serious problem of, and I agree with the idea that the government should have some kind of regulation around borders and keep some kind of check on people traveling because of quite frightening things like the South African variant or the new strain and we this is a virus that we don't really know where it's going and so you know regulations are in order but the point that Luke Gittos makes in his spike column this week is that the criminal law is a blunt instrument and that what's actually happening here is that the law and judges um, and the judiciary are being used to basically put out a message of public health it's being used as a kind of messaging service because the defense is Oh, well, of course, no one will get 10 years for this. You know, don't be silly. It's not going to actually happen. But what it will do is scare us all shitless. And, you know, (laughs) number one, if you say that, presumably it's not going to work because people will know that they won't get 10 years and will flaunt it anyway. So that kind of undermines your own logic. But it's also, you know, it's a complete bastardization of what the criminal justice system is supposed to be about, that Mm. it's supposed to be a very serious thing. And then actually going, even getting to the point in which you are facing a judge in court is a very serious thing, never mind sentencing, being arrested. You know, all these things are very serious things and should only happen if they are absolutely necessary and are worthwhile. I mean, the question for me is, what is it that, you know, Matt Hancock or Boris Johnson or whoever it is that's behind the thinking on this, what is it about the way in which the public has acted that they are convinced needs these kinds of measures? Because actually, as it happens, 
there have been debates between lockdown skeptics and people who are fanatical about lockdowns. But as it happens, the vast majority of the British public have been pretty good at sticking to the regulations throughout this period. Yes, we've had a couple of raves in Bristol and young people doing this, that and the other. But in general, compliance has been pretty high and, and people have celebrated that because there has been a, a sentiment of people wanting to be in this together. And so slapping a 10-year ban on us is a real insult to the public. And then, you know, not helped by the fact that you have, I have to mention it because I can't quite believe it. Columns, for example, from The Guardian <laughs> with the strap line, the government's new quarantine restrictions sound tough, but they're exactly one year too late. So, I mean, this is the world we live in, in which there can be no regulation too strict, no sentence too long for anyone who questions the strategy of the government. It's it's a rather depressing picture. But the real question I have is, do they really think that people are going to be going abroad willy-nilly in the middle of a pandemic without serious caution? And do they really think a 10-year sentence is going to solve the problem if there is a problem? Tom, it is worth stressing that this proposal in particular is absolutely crazy. Like Matt Hancock has completely lost his mind. Mm. The arguments have been well made there by Ella and also by various other people at the moment. But the prospects of getting 10 years in prison for lying on a form and the fact that this doesn't actually generate the kind of shock in the commentary, apart from in the more lockdown sceptical circles, is really quite striking. Even a lot of the discussions around quarantine hotels. Now, there's a debate to be had there about what is and isn't necessary in order to kind of fight the virus and the new variants in the long term. But what you're basically talking about is mass detention, largely of your own citizens <laughs> returning to your country. And the ease with which these proposals are talked about, and as Ella says, the only scrutiny that seems to come of them is why aren't they tougher and why weren't they brought in earlier, is really quite alarming because there's been two aspects to the whole kind of lockdown experience, which have been really alarming. Obviously, the measures themselves, which people will disagree about the efficacy of and the how far they went and how stringent they were and how successful they were. But it's also about how they've been done. So this 10-year prison sentence, this particular stipulation, Parliament aren't even going to get a vote on it mm. because they found some kind of wheeze through which it could be passed via older legislation. And this has been the story throughout the pandemic process. When the lockdown was entered into at the end of March, it was just at the scribbling of Matt Hancock's pen. They used the Public Health Act 1984, funnily enough, to usher this in, which has very few protections for parliamentary scrutiny. And the government has basically been ruling by decree ever since, just changing the law willy-nilly with occasionally a little debate in Parliament, often after the fact, but again, so little actual scrutiny. And that's something which is going to be so important to kind of unpick and challenge going forward, because the issue that we've talked about many times on this podcast, but I think we're really starting to see now that the conversation is turning towards how do we live with COVID in the long term, let alone future crises and whatever those might constitute, is the extent to which this way of governing and these kinds of powers are going to persist for years beyond this. Because especially when we're at a position where we're coming up on one year of this new normal, mm. quote unquote, the complete lack of any proper scrutiny, even from the kind of human rights lot who have been remarkably silent over the course of the past year, I think tells us how much ground we have to make up in terms of just making clear the importance of liberty, certainly, but also just democracy and scrutiny even in the midst of a crisis when you're dealing with something like this, because it's been completely pushed aside throughout all of this. And the more authoritarian you become, the more closed off you are from scrutiny, the more kind of drunk on your own power, as Matt Hancock seems to be, 
the more ridiculous and absurd the restrictions and decisions you make tend to be. And I think the, yeah. the 10 year prison sentence for lying about your trip to Portugal was a pretty good example of that. And you're right. It's, it's not only that it's a year on in the crisis, which means that there is simply no excuse for using emergency legislation in, in that way. You could forgive emergency powers being taken up a year ago. Now we're hopefully coming to the end of the crisis. You know, the vaccines are being rolled out very effectively. We're starting to see effects on the numbers of cases among the elderly. The news is, is very good. Even in just in terms of cases, you know, we're back down to where we were in September. And yet now is the time, apparently, to introduce even more draconian legislation. And you do have to ask the question, if new laws are coming in right now, then you do have to question, well, are they there for the long haul? Are they really just a temporary measure? And I think people are perhaps right to be worried, not just about their summer holidays this summer, which, you know, people are being very dismissive about as if that's the only reason people ever travel. But also, you know, what restrictions will be placed on on travel perhaps indefinitely? Will there become a kind of two-tier system for who can and can't travel? You know, will it be exclusive to essentially rich people? Because the, you know, the amount of cost to go in one of these quarantine hotels is around £1,700. And it is worth asking these questions, even just if, for the government to say, no, don't be silly. <laughs> we'll go back mm. to normal on X day. But I think there is something about the last couple of weeks where the announcements from the government have been pointing in a certain direction that is very kind of pessimistic, unduly pessimistic, given what is actually going on in terms of the virus and in terms of the vaccine program. Ella? In this particular moment, it does feel like particularly Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson have entered into a kind of bunker mentality in which it feels like policies like this and new laws and very serious things are being floated or leaked to the media kind of with hours to spare before they actually become enacted as law and then are put out with with not just no scrutiny but no discussion, no debate. Because if the idea behind this 10-year sentence is to send a message to people, the message that it sends is an incredibly pessimistic one, as you say, but also an incredibly frightening one because it denies the fact that the most successful points in this pandemic have been when the government has brought people along with them and has not just nurtured but actually utilised a general sense of social solidarity and wanting to work together. You know, without kind of sounding crass, you have to have a certain appreciation that people are, despite the, despite the most faithful lockdowners, grasping for a light at the end of the tunnel because that's the nature of of human beings and we want to look forward to something, we want to be able to plan. And the thing about instituting these kinds of laws, it's not just that there's no end in sight in terms of the pandemic and us returning to normal life, but it's very difficult to revoke emergency powers. The British government has got a very bad track record on leaving emergency powers on the statute books far longer than the emergency requires. And to the point you make, Fraser, about this being a year on is a key one. This is not necessarily an emergency any longer. It's a situation that we have to deal with. And so therefore it needs reasoned debate. You have to ask the question, at least towards the end of last year, the politicians felt the pressure of saying things like, we will review this in two weeks. This is not permanent. We've kind of lost that now. And it just feels like this is a situation that's rolling on and rolling on and laws are being instituted on top of laws. 
And the question is, when will this all be revoked? Because once the promise of the vaccine and the, and the brilliant power of the vaccine kicks in and we become inoculated against this pandemic and cases start to fall and life starts to get back to normal, will there be a wiping of the statute books? I mean, that's what we should demand. And if so, why aren't politicians talking about it now? Thanks for listening to the Spike podcast. We'll be back next week. If you enjoyed the show, why not check out some of Spike's other podcasts in the meantime? We have the Brendan O'Neill show in which Spike's editor talks all about the big ideas, bad ideas, problems and controversies of life in the 21st century, all with the help of an esteemed guest. Then there's Culture Wars hosted by Spike's columnist, stand-up comic and satirist Andrew Doyle. This monthly podcast is the perfect antidote to the woke idiocy taking over our lives. And last but not least, you should check out Last Orders, a podcast hosted by Tom Slater and Chris Snowden. Last Orders is all about freedom, the nanny state and censorship. And there's a lot about coronavirus these days too. You can listen to all these shows with your favourite podcast provider or you can find them on the Spiked website at spiked-online.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.